All right, this is David Spence for energytradeoffs.com, and uh, we're here today with Michael Berger. Michael is the executive director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law and a senior research scholar and lecturer in law at Columbia Law School. Michael, thanks for sitting down to talk to us today. My pleasure. So uh, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is because you're really one of the foremost experts on climate change litigation out there, and we don't really have much on our website about that topic yet. It's a very big topic as I sort of survey it. Um, but what I thought we could do today is have you explain a little bit about some of the basic theories behind uh, some of the cases that we've heard about. And we can also talk a little bit about some of the challenges presented by those cases. Uh, so why don't we start with uh, the, the public nuisance cases. Can you, for, for those who might not be familiar with this theory of liability, can you just in a nutshell explain the, the basic theory by which plaintiffs are trying to hold fossil fuel producers liable for certain costs they experience here? Well, sure. So the, the, the public nuisance cases um, are filed, there have been more than a dozen cases filed by cities around the United States and, and a separate lawsuit filed by the state of Rhode Island and a separate lawsuit filed by the Pacific Fishermen's Association against the large fossil fuel companies, Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, um, and others, uh, seeking compensation or abatement under a range of theories, including public nuisance, private nuisance, negligence, failure to warn, design defect, tre uh, trespass, uh, really a range of theories sounding in tort property and, and products liability um, for the costs of adaptation. And the, the underlying theory of these cases um, is that these entities, these fossil fuel companies are responsible uh, in a core sense for the greenhouse gas emissions for a significant or material contribution to the greenhouse gas emissions that are causing climate change. Um, and that as a result of those emissions, these, these cities are in, in the state of Rhode Island are suffering impacts that are forcing them to adapt and that there are significant costs that go along with that adaptation. The storyline that runs through all of these cases is that the fossil fuel industry and these particular companies have long known about the harm and the risk of harm associated with their product, um, that they have sought to um, misinform or disinform the public and the government about those risks, uh, and that they have profited um, as a result of, of their activities, and that the plaintiffs or have themselves have suffered harm as a, as a direct result of it. And the nature of the harm, the reason you have cities as plaintiffs is because cities are having to expend money to adapt or mitigate the effects of climate change, correct? That's right. That's right. There's, there's costs to some of the cases concern costs uh, already incurred to respond to impacts such as floods and sea level rise and um, others involve costs to anticipate and prevent future harm. And one of the so one of the uh, sources of inf of information on which the plaintiffs rely to attribute the harm to the particular defendants is this um, carbon majors project, 
or this research that essentially has tried to track uh, responsibility for percentages of greenhouse gases emitted into the atmosphere historically. And as it happens, uh, a, a huge percentage of, of those greenhouse gases can be traced back to a relatively small number of companies. That's exactly right. Um, and actually, there are, there are a couple of different versions of that study. One looking at the you know, more than a century's worth of corporate data, and then another looking at responsibility for emissions since 1989. Arguably, emissions since 1989 are more responsible for the level of global warming that we're experiencing now and will experience than historic emissions going further back. The, the, the report itself includes both um, publicly owned um, companies, shareholder uh, companies, as well as state-owned enterprises like Saudi Aramco and, uh, and others. What this study, did, what was different about this study was that it sought to tie emissions not to the emitters themselves and not to the nations in which the emitters are located, but to the companies that actually pulled the fossil fuels out of the ground um, and put them into the market. So, so let me ask a couple of questions about that, and these are really based on the sort of rejoinders that you get from uh, defendants in these cases. W one is about sort of the individual shares of responsibility. In some of these cases, the particular named defendants each have quite, at least what look like numerically small shares of responsibility. They tend to be uh, investor-owned oil companies whose shares are in the low single digits of percentages. Um, does that get, does that make it harder for plaintiffs in these cases to, um, to get past the sort of initial hurdles and to uh, make their case for imposing liability on these firms? I think that if the plaintiffs were to sue one single company under these, under these theories, um, it may make it more difficult or uh, it may, it may increase, you know, the resistance that an individual judge or panel of judges may, may have to finding liability. Most of the cases uh, target a number of companies that cumulatively uh, add up to a more significant number. But I think that the, the theory of the case is that even individually, each individual company has made a material contribution to the problem. Mm -hmm. The other part of this that I think um, comes up in some of these cases is the question of intervening causes, um, the idea that uh, these companies sold their products to willing buyers who burned them and caused the actual emissions. The point, the point I wanted to ask about was really this, this question of whether it's fair to hold responsible the companies who are selling a product that people want and that the people burn to create the emissions or the buyers burn to create the emissions in, in, uh, in these cases. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think that there's good precedent that, um, that, the, that the plaintiffs can point to. The, the, the most obvious analogy and the most frequently invoked one is to tobacco. Um, there's also been litigation around of, of varying degrees of success, um, but nonetheless valid cases that, that have been brought to court around handguns, um, uh, around the, the mortgage crisis and its impact in Cleveland, for instance, uh, and most recently, uh, opioids. You know, and in that in that circumstance, certainly there are intervening actors in between the 
the manufacturer of the drug um, that goes into the opioid and the consumer who consumes it and then the society that is, that is impacted by that and the state that has to extend the costs to deal with the public health crisis that has resulted. Um, so, you know, I think that there are good analogies out there and there's, there's certainly precedent to be relied upon. And, and the causal chain, although it is further uh, than in the tobacco situation where you have a product that is consumed by an individual who then, you know, suffers adverse health effects as a result, um, nonetheless is, is perceptible. It's not that this is, uh, you know, an infinite chain of causation. Right. Let me let me just ask one more thing about that, then we can move on to one of the other the other theories here. But um, so the opioid case seems like a much better analogy to me than the tobacco analogy, in the sense that you have a like you said, you have a pharmacist in between prescribing these things, or uh, or somebody who's sort of delivering these things to people. But there's a there's a sort of another. Or tobacco, it seems to me the analogy would be to farmers almost, right? Suing the farmers instead of tobacco companies um, because they're, they're the original producers of the product that harms people. Is that a fair reaction? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know because I don't know enough about who owned, you know, the extent to which the tobacco companies actually were also involved in um, either owning or funding the the crops themselves, that's not something I, I, I don't know much, much about that. But I think that, you know, the, the analogy, I think you're right, that the analogy to the opioid situation is probably a more, it's a closer analogy than, than tobacco for, for a number of different reasons. Yeah, and it also, it also gets at that issue that came up in the Judge Alsup decision about sort of the, the fact that there are benefits that society enjoys from fossil fuels and there are from opioids as well right i mean so that's another way in which that analogy is a much better one for the plaintiffs here than tobacco or firearms although i suppose you can make an argument that firearms have some benefit you can make an argument that tobacco has some benefit to smokers you know committed smokers certainly think so but the Alsop opinion was pretty strong, and that's that's a tough that's that's tough language for for plaintiffs in that case, as I recall. I mean, it was sort of a uh, it was like it was basically talking about the industrial revolution and the development of the modern world being attributable to fossil fuels, and um, so I would think yeah, that so this is and this is a line of defense that um, that. Is, is not new, right? I mean, the power companies that were sued in the case Connecticut versus American Electric Power um, also raised uh, similar sorts of idea, similar sorts of um, proposition that you know you can't hold a company responsible for a nuisance when nuisance when it's providing power that that everybody relies on. Yeah, I think, and and certainly there's some rhetorical force to that argument. And obviously there's, depending on the legal angle that you're um, adopting, there may be real legal um, imports to it. And in the Alsop's approach, there was a necessary, there could be a necessary balancing um, that a court would have to go through before finding a nuisance. Um, and that he felt ultimately that such a balancing might tilt strongly in favor 
of the defendants because of the benefits that have undoubtedly accrued to society uh, from, from production and consumption of fossil fuels. Also didn't ultimately decide on that basis. Um, the, the ultimate decision was based on separation of powers principles. Um, and so we don't know how that balancing will turn out. But certainly any court that decides that in order to resolve the nuisance claim, they have to conduct a, a balancing act between the benefits of the complaint of activity um, and the harms that were suffered will have to consider to some extent you know, the, the, the benefits of electricity um, and our, our transportation system. Um, so let's talk about the Juliana case because it raises, um, or it's based on the public trust doctrine, which has been around for a, a long time and which uh, some has been written about in environmental law for as long as I've been interested in environmental law and, um, and periodically enjoys sort of little successes here and there. But this is a much bigger claim, and, and it's a case that's gotten past some of the initial hurdles in court. So it's got a lot of people excited, and I'm talking about the Juliana case. Can you just explain for those who don't understand what it is, the public trust doctrine, and how it figures into this case? Uh, there are two parts to the plaintiff's case in Juliana. One is that there is a substantive due process right to a stable climate system. Um, second. The, the plaintiffs argue that uh, the federal government has an obligation under the public trust doctrine to manage natural resources and its own authority in a way uh, to better protect current and future generations. Um, the, the, the public trust doctrine is, in short, uh, derived from ancient principles that go back to the Roman Empire and Roman law uh, that ascribe to the government that responsibility, the responsibility to manage resources, including natural resources, in a way that protects people now and in the future. And so this case has, uh, the, the, the trial judge in this case has essentially allowed it to go forward. It survived some, some motions to dismiss. Can you explain where it stands right now? Yeah, it's another one of these cases that the uh, United States Supreme Court has done some unprecedented things and <laughs> shaken up the, the usual course of business. Um, so the, the plaintiffs survived in an initial motion to dismiss. And, and the day, on the day after um, Donald Trump was elected president, uh, a federal district court judge in Oregon issued an opinion denying the motion, the, the government's motion to dismiss the case and found that there is a substantive due process right under the U.S. Constitution to a stable climate system uh, and that the public trust doctrine uh, does apply in this context. And so plaintiffs so, and, and directed the case to move towards discovery and eventually a trial on, on the merits. So they went up, up and down. They went up to the Supreme Court a, a number of times and um, eventually the Supreme Court um, declined to hear the case, but sent a clear message to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that it, th it felt that there was, uh, that there are important issues of law in the case that ought to be resolved without the case having to go to trial. Because at this point, the case has survived 
a motion for summary judgment after some amount of discovery it was completed. Um, and, uh, and so now the, the denial of the motion for summary judgment is up on appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, and basically they've heard oral argument, the case is fully briefed, and we're waiting for an opinion from the Ninth Circuit on that, on the summary judgment decision. Okay. And, and one of the things that's quite different about this suit compared to the previous set of litigation we were talking about is that it's against the government and it's the government's failure essentially to regulate that is being complained of here. Is that a fair statement? It's both the, fa- the government's failure to regulate and the affirmative actions that the government has undertaken in setting regulations and in its uh, public lands management. Would it be fair to say that um, in this case, you don't have that sort of tiny sliver of percentage to the pro- of contribution to the problem that you have with individual investor-owned oil companies? In other words, we're dealing with the things the United States does to address carbon emissions, which collectively amount to a fairly large percentage of emissions? Well, certainly the, United, the, 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 the percentage of emissions emitted within the United States um, over the course of the nation's history are, are large. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's still the largest um, historic contributor to climate change, although China will, will soon take over that. Um, but that being said, the question of how much is the government actually responsible for is very much an issue in contention. Um, this is not an issue that's before the court Right now, because uh, there the, there has there hasn't been a trial on the issue, um, and they're they're at the summary judgment motion phase. But both sides have submitted extensive expert reports, and these are collected on our on our database on the Savings Center's climate change litigation database. And in those expert reports, you can look through them and see that the plaintiffs and the defendants have very different numbers when it comes to how much the government is responsible for. And the government's number is much, much smaller than the plaintiff's number. And those responsibility differences are about what exactly? Well, I think um, if I remember correctly, um, the government contests the idea that it can be held responsible for all emissions within its jurisdiction altogether. It just says that that's not a, you can't, you can't, count all emissions within the United States as being emissions that the United States is responsible for. Um, and it seeks to, to limit it to emissions that uh, the government actually has directly emitted through government operations um, and, and government facilities and things like that. I see. I, I was sort of focusing on that, what I thought was the Juliana plaintiffs seeking some kind of mandatory relief, some sort of order as opposed to damages. Are they seeking damages? Well, no, that's, 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 it's absolutely, it is the case that they are seeking an injunction. Right. And not damages. But it's also the case that if they're going to prove that there's a violation of their constitutional right. I see. That the government has violated its public trust obligations, they have to show the extent to which the government is responsible for climate change. I see. Okay. I want to, you mentioned something that I meant to mention at the outset, which is that the Saving Center and Arnold and Porter have compiled a, a wealth of information about all of the, or almost all or all of the climate change litigation out there. And we're going to link that on your page. Uh, 
and and by glancing at it, people can see that we are barely scratching the surface in talking about what we've talked about so far. So given all the other kinds of climate litigation out there, are there particular cases or theories that we haven't talked about that you think people ought to be keeping an eye on? Well, I think if you look to the international arena, um, there's more going on in these kind of rights-based approaches. Um, there are, there, there's a lawsuit in France against the French oil company Total. There's a case um, in the Netherlands against Shell. Um, both of those cases uh, are similar to the cases filed by cities here against fossil fuel companies, though rather than invoking public nuisance, the, the case in France alleges that the, the, the that Total is in violation of a statutory duty of vigilance under French law. And under, in, in the Netherlands case against Shell, it's, a, it's something akin to a, a failure that the company is in violation of its own um, duty of care to the public. Um, and they invoke human rights uh, as, a, as, a, as a potential basis. There was just on Monday this week, um, a petition filed with the UN Convention, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child by 16 youth petitioners, including Greta Thunberg, alleging that five countries are in violation of their obligations under the Convention on the Rights of the Child um, by virtue of their failure to take action on climate change. There was a lawsuit filed by the Torres Strait Islanders in Australia against the Australian government a petition filed with the UN Committee on Human Rights alleging that that country was in violation of its international human rights obligations based on its failure to address climate change. Um, so these constitutional public trust rights-based approaches are cropping up in foreign countries and in international um, and international fora. And, um, and, and I think that that's, you know, also something that's very much worth noting and, and of interest. And I, I think your website really um, is a great resource for people to keep track of it all. Yeah, you know, we have, a, we have two separate databases, one for U.S. cases and one for non-U.S. cases. And there are roughly three times as many cases in the U.S. that we've been able to identify as compared to the rest of the world combined. <laughs> um, but they, both, of, both of these um, databases collect many, but not all of the documents associated with, with these cases. And um, it really is a wealth of information uh, around climate litigation. Okay. Well, I, I really appreciate your sitting down and sharing your expertise with us today. Thanks very much, Michael. It was a lot of fun talking to you.